Welcome to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we continue our ongoing faculty spotlight series, what we call Office Hours, with an interview with Manel Balsells. Manel is a member of the Quantitative Analysis faculty here at the Darden School of Business, and he is also the David M. LaCrosse Associate Professor of Business Administration. Manel recently joined us on Office Hours to share more about his background, what attracted him to his particular research interests, some of the courses he teaches here at the Darden School, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Professor Manel Balsells. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the latest installment in our ongoing faculty conversation series, what we call Office Hours. This is a joint production between Darden Admissions and Darden Ideas to Action. It is always such a pleasure to be able to offer these conversations and see where everyone in the world is calling in from. We are all around the world again for this session. So pleased to also be joined by our featured guest uh, for this, the 13th installment in this conversation. We're officially in season three. I'm joined this this morning uh, here by Manel Bossells, a member of our quantitative analysis faculty. Uh, now, Manel, uh, that's quite an impressive backdrop you have. Where are you calling in from? I'm actually in Denver right now. So that's where my in-laws are. So as soon as my daughter finishes school, I came here so that she can be with her cousins. Um, and yeah, here I am. All right. Well, let's start off by talking a little bit more about you. And I will note uh, for our attendees today, if you do have questions as we go along, we're going to cover a lot of ground here about Manel, his background, the research that he's done, what he's working on currently. Uh, but if you have questions, uh, we'll keep an eye on the Q&A. Please feel free to ask away there. And uh, we always like to field a few questions from the audience. So thank you so much. And Manel, first question, same as always here on Office Hours. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Uh, what's your What's your story? Where are you from? These kinds of things. Right. So I'm, I am originally from Barcelona area, from uh, uh, Spain. Uh, I am by training an engineer. So in in our country we call it the squareheads. So people who always want to have very precise definitions and, and, and like everything has to be measured and quantified and I remember in high school, I liked math and physics, but I like all the soft stuff. I had a hard time. So then I did engineering. Then I went to business, did an MBA, and I decided to wanted to be a MBA professor. Um, and and then I did my PhD at UCLA, and that's when I discovered the world of uh, trying to quantify things that you would think are unquantifiable. Uh, I, uh, like in economics, like consumer preferences or in psychology, like uh, measure emotions, if you will. And then I, I just started doing research on, let's say, quantifying the unquantifiable, so to speak. And, and then, um, and that definitely has a lot of applications for business, like understanding consumer preferences, understanding uh, perceptions of value, uh, and so on. And then when you can contrast that with more like rational ways of looking at those things, it creates a very nice, uh, very nice contrast. Well, I want to go back just a little bit and just curious about how you decided. There's many paths for engineers in this world. How did you decide, though, that you wanted to be a, a business school professor, that that was the path for you? Well, originally I did my MBA at ESA Business School, and then the school uh, sponsored me to to do a PhD and stay there as a professor, which I did for for ten years or ten plus years. So that 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 made it like a very attractive uh, a very attractive uh, path for me. Um, then eventually I left ESA, I, and then I moved to the US. I when I married my wife, and then I worked at Rand Corporation in Santa Monica for for two years. So I got exposed to uh, to this world of uh, applied research to solve societal problems. Uh, but I, I saw that that was not for me. And then at that moment, Darden had an opening, and I already knew Darden for a long time ago because there was a professor in quantitative analysis, Dana Kleiman, who unfortunately passed away. 
who visited Barcelona many years before. And then at that time, we established a relationship. I visited Darden a couple of times. So I knew everybody in the department, like Robert Caraway from the two, early 2000s. I, I knew Yael Grushka Cocaine very well from conferences in decision analysis. I knew Casey very well for many years. So it was, it had that feeling of being at home. Like I knew uh, everybody in the department. And then what happens is that not many business schools uh, have dedicated departments of quantitative methods um, and data analysis and Arden has. So that was uh, also very attractive for me to, to be in a department that's that just dedicated to quantitative methods per se without an, a specific committed to a specific application, even though then you apply it to many different uh, settings or different situations. I want to also go back to something that you also previously shared um, about quantifying the unquantifiable. How did this become your, your area of interest? Uh, curious about the story here. Um, well, it is... Well, once you are in quantitative methods, the, the natural initial applications that, that, that you may want to think about is, is operations or finance, because those, those areas have very clear quantitative content, right? Like the money that you make, that's a number, and, or the, 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 the stocks and quantities that you move, that's another number. So those are two areas where where it's very natural to use quantitative methods. But when it comes to individual preferences, then yes, if you like something more than something else, you could in principle put like a higher number to what you like more than the other and you call it that the perceived value. Well, uh, people in social sciences and economics have been working on this type of measurement for a long time. And it has uh, reached a level of maturity that, that it can be little by little translated to, to business models and business decisions. And, and that's the part that it's uh, very exciting to do. Well, we've got a question here in the Q&A, um, and I think it kind of builds on one of the advanced questions that you and I had worked on about teaching a subject like decision analysis uh, through the case method. Um, and you have a whole mix of people in the classroom, some people who have background with some of these methods and uh, people who do not have background and are learning some of these methods for the first time. So right. what's it like uh, teaching in the case method? Right. So the, the emphasis of the case method is to not try to do rocket science, like apply uh, like very complicated uh, techniques or, or things like that, because that's not what's going on in the real world. The real world, you will have... a certain solution methods, but that's just one third of what you're supposed to do as a manager, like identify, oh, this problem will have this way of being solved or addressed. But the other two thirds are first identifying the problem. Like you're not in a school where you are given the inputs and oh, solve this problem. You are in a messy situation where you're supposed to say, oh, with the data that I have, uh, and in this situation, that's the type, uh, there's a tool that could solve that, or there's a technique that could give me the answer to this. So there's, there's one third that's connecting your real life problem to a possible tool or solution method. Then the second third is successfully apply the solution method. And then the last third is to communicate the solution, like, oh, we're going to do this because of this, this, and that, or that's, that method is appropriate because this, this, and that. And that's what the case method gives you. It gives you this full circle of having to, you get a description of a real messy situation. Then, then you have to connect it to the, to the possible tool or, or, or technique that will solve that. And then you have to explain to your classmates why the solution makes sense and so on. So then what we do in class is we do like the, the we try to do the full circle because just teaching the technique itself, uh, if that were more like lecture base, will then, then you go out in the real world and you cannot really complete the circle. 
yeah, it's a different to practice in the real world than it is uh, to practice in an educational environment where you've got a whole mix of classmates, you've got the faculty there, and kind of a safety net to, to try right. some of these things out. Right. There's a second aspect to the case method. And, well, it's not that that has to do with with how do actually people learn. And it seems that people learn when they have to explain something in their own words. And then they realize that ah, it doesn't quite come up. It, oh, I thought I understood it. But when it comes to having to explain it to others, it just doesn't flow the way I thought. And that's also something that at Darden we do in all courses all the time. Like the student is the center. And then we try to put you in the spot, most of the times voluntarily. You raise your hand and then talk. And sometimes involuntarily with cold calls so that you get to practice this. Oh, now I have to explain it. And if I successfully explain it, that's when I know that I understand it. Oops, I think you're muted. Uh, it, apparently my first Zoom session. Um, so I've talked with Yael a bunch about this, and she talks about the centrality of communication uh, and the ability to explain your thinking. Um, and how, and you're touching upon this too, that this is very much the root of, even in these more quantitative or uh, more technically oriented courses, you still have to look at the data, use the tool, and then tell a story. You have to be well, able to communicate. that's particularly important because in, in our courses, then you have this mix of students with a strong quantitative background, students with very good intuition, but maybe not as a strong background, and it's precisely, you will also have this mix in the real world. And then that's what we want. We want everybody to be able to, to follow along. Like the ones who understand the technique, be able to explain it to others. The ones that, that don't understand the technique, but maybe understand the business situation better, uh, question them like, oh, but your assumptions are not good enough, or this is an unrealistic solution. And like questioning the output and so it's this is exactly what we're looking for well let's start to transition into your research and i noticed we're getting a few questions here in the q a i'll keep an eye on it um but i was watching your fa faculty video in preparation for this conversation and in that video you spend a lot of time talking about things that seem more like emotional or psychological concepts things like right reference points, satiety, uh, right. these these kinds of ideas. And, and you touched upon this earlier, right? This idea of quantifying the unquantifiable. Um, why do you think these are such important considerations right. when understanding so, human? Yeah, when it comes, for instance, to, to attitudes towards risk, like uh, have people are willing to take risk or not, uh, turns out that in, in the... In the rational world, what should matter for your appetite for risk is your wealth, like how rich you are. Like, and then if you are, if you have more resources, you will take more risks, and if you have less, you will take less risk. But then, in 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 behavioral economics, what's been found is that it's the people are not easily think about their resources uh, when it comes to a situation. They think more about how. It, their current situation, and then where they gain or lose, and then they are very averse to losses. So then the what matters here is the reference point that you would use to count gains or losses. And so then you need to understand how this reference point, where you think, oh, if I, if I am above that, I'll, I'll be happy. If I am below that, I'll be upset. And then that will count kind of double, right? So that's the, that's the type of uh, thing that matters. So then you want to understand where your reference point is. So that's and, one aspect, yeah. And I know you've also done a lot of work around satiety, which is uh, right. another interesting idea. So, so the other, yeah, that's more, uh, the reference point is something that Kahneman and, and, and Tversky uh, put forward. So it's not, uh, not my... My idea is just that I have worked a lot on identifying how reference points move. Something that with a, a professor at UCLA, Rakesh Rin, and myself developed, and then also now with a colleague in China, is the notion of association. And there's this idea in, 
that of diminishing marginal returns. Like if you eat one apple, you will enjoy a lot, but if you eat two apples, the second apple, it will need, not be that enjoyable and so on. But then the question is, well, but if how if I wait three hours between the first apple and the second apple? Will I enjoy the second apple the same as the first? And then intuitively, if you wait long enough, you will re-enjoy the second apple the same. So then you have this notion that after eating the first apple, there's some kind of cessation for apples that will decay over time and will make you then re-enjoy the second apple. And then it's this type of uh, the, how the cessation level moves and how it affects your, your preferences that it's very interesting because then you can have... Um, we applied, for instance, to design of sequences and, for instance, uh, in a concert, like, would you put the best song at the beginning, the best song at the end, the best song in the middle? Like, what should you do? And then we find that if you account for association effects, generally the best sequences will have a high starting, then be like low in the middle, and then have a, a high ending. And that's what is, so to speak, optimal to, to have. And that you can see, you see that in actual uh, concerts, how, how they are uh, designed, but also in in other, uh, like if you go to fireworks, you will also have the same idea, like a, a big bang at the beginning, then it keeps going, and then the best for the end. Uh, and you may want to apply this also for designing sequences when you travel around. Like I visit, the, uh, if I go on uh, um, a city and there are like four or five things to see, like what do I do? I see the, th the best at the beginning, the best at the end, and so on. How did you get interested in the set list um, question? Are you a big music fan? Just curious. Uh, I'm a, uh, I would say I enjoy music. I attend concerts uh, now and then. Uh, it's, 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 it's more like music is a really ideal consumption good because it's something that you can consume in like, uh, it has an intensity. Uh, it's in what's called continuous time. So it's like a flow of consumption, so to speak. Uh, Kahneman also studied music, like association for music. He has these experiments where, what do you prefer to hear the same song over and over and over, or hear or change songs even though they are not as good? And, and people say, oh, I prefer to listen to different songs even though they are not as good, but not the same one over and over, right? Things like that. Um, so, so music is uh, an ideal good, and also I also like it. So. The other thing that you're noting, uh, too, as you're talking here, is this idea of maybe anticipation between these things, right? right? Well, factor that that uh, is uh, it's under-modeled or, under, or not as understood as it should be is how much you can call it happiness or satisfaction you, people derive from anticipating. Like, for instance, when it comes to traveling, for instance, there is research suggesting that one third to one half of the total satisfaction will come just for the mere anticipation of the trip. Uh, the same happens with pain, actually. There's an interesting research that people uh, that have, uh, some people older have like pin creaks of pain, but they are so fast that the pain itself is very short-lived. But what really carries the pain is the anticipation of those uh, moments of uh, like very brief pain, right? And then if uh, if they develop Alzheimer's, then they become happier because they don't they cannot anymore anticipate those uh, those pain moments. So it is the anticipation of pain that's the worst part, more than the pain itself. Um, so then, yes, a lot of research is about uh, knowing, uh, managing expectations, anticipating, uh, knowing more about yourself, being smarter about yourself. Um, so the more we know what drives um, satisfaction, enjoyment, or pain, the more we can manage it for ourselves. Of course, also the more you can then help businesses uh, tailor-made products or make consumers happier. Uh, um, and then also get a share of that value as well for themselves. So that's why it's, uh, it's a nice area for just life in itself and business. Well, I'm 
And I know this may be a very difficult question to answer, Manel, but I'm curious about how do you even approach like trying to quantify something like satiety or anticipation that feels more abstract, it's more emotional. How do you try to put numbers well, around that? You have to make uh, mm, like frameworks. You have to create frameworks where where numbers make sense. Like for 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 emotions, what you the framework where you adopt is like look. There's a finite set of emotions that people can experience. Some, there, you could see some people make short list of maybe 20 emotions. Sometimes you can see lists of 50 emotions. But, but you say, well, at any given moment, I'm going to be experiencing one of those, and then with certain intensity. And then if I were to track that uh, over time, that will be a curve that when I'm happy, it's going to be above zero. When I'm sad or anxious or experience a negative emotion, it's going to be below zero. And then you could at least theoretically uh, define the area under the curve. And the area under the curve will be your happiness. And then the idea is, well, what determines whether the emotion will be positive or negative or higher or lower? And then depending on what you decide, that that curve will be higher or lower than otherwise. And then the association model will tell you that if you do high, low, high sequences, the total area under the curve will be higher than if you do something else, right? Uh, for, for consumption goods and, and so on. And then we also, when it comes to anticipation, <laughs> we find that you, there's a, an optimal amount of anticipation. So if you anticipate something too much for too long, you create too many expectations and then you you are either disappointed or not that surprised when the thing happens. But if you anticipate for a very short time or even create a surprise for yourself or your partner, then since you didn't anticipate anything, you will have something very surprising, very memorable. And then there's a right amount of anticipation to make the area under the curve the highest, at least in the model. But when I discuss this case with the MBA students, they all agree with that. And they come out with all sorts of examples. Like this last time, a student said, look, one time I, a friend of mine and myself decided on the spot to go to the airport and fly away somewhere. And to this day, we still remember that, right? And then you have the other example of somebody who had planned a vacation for so long that then when it came to it, it was disappointing because they kind of idealized the whole thing too much, right? Uh, anyway, so that's, uh, so it's a, a bit of a, so you create a framework where the model makes sense and hopefully it relates to reality. So, so and then over time, all these frameworks get revised and improved and it's, it's, uh, uh, I think that's, how science has worked uh, in many areas that you, you create these provisional frameworks where things can be well-defined and then you keep improving them to make them more and more realistic uh, over the years. I wanted to stay with this high-low, high anticipation idea, the satiety, some of the things that we're touching on here and think about like, how can a business use this idea. Uh, I know you have these conversations in your classes um, and we talked about the set list as a, an example of application, but when you talk with uh, students or you, you right, look right. at particular that industries. Pretty nice part of the, the, I teach this elective on behavioral decision-making where we touch on reference points and risk attitudes and discounting of future consequences and then this anticipation and high, low, high. And then there's always this conversation on business applications. Like, for instance, when it comes to anticipation, like then uh, the ideas that will come out will be all like shorter delivery time. So that people, the, between the time you decide to make the purchase to the time that you receive the product. And you, you see that this is an important dimension of competing, like businesses who, uh, who can deliver shorter, uh, in shorter times uh, have an advantage over those that, uh, for many reasons, where anticipation could be, could be one of them. And Amazon has been uh, particularly successful in, in shortening the, the delivery times. Um, the high-low high, uh, this is a, well, you can apply that for design of experiential, experiential services, uh, music being one of them, but 
you could also, if you organize a conference, also it's very important to, I'm actually now a week from a conference here in Roslyn that I'm organizing and one, at some moment there was this doubt of what shall we do with the speakers, put the best speaker in at the end or, or not because many people would leave. And I then say, no, no, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you put the best speaker at the end, people will stay and then they will enjoy the best. If you have doubts about that, all of a sudden the thing unravels and then you don't put the best, people leave, it's a disaster at the end. So, so that's just an example where to, to, this, to decide about the order of speakers or when to put them in a conference, it's a design principle that can be quite, quite useful and then guarantee the success that people stay at the end and hopefully it's going to be the case, but uh, that's another example. Um, well, let's talk about a book that you published called Engineering Happiness that touches upon, you know, we've been talking about happiness here. Right. Um, what attracted you to this idea? Yeah, so so basically we, with Rakesh, we wrote a, a research article um, with, with a model that combined this notion of association, like the high-low high, the notion of spacing things out, because when you're spacing things out, you say, oh, missing out. No, but at the same time, you are, um, dec your association decays, so you will enjoy more next time around. So, so the spacing, spacing things out, variety. So if you always the same, like hearing the same song all the time, that's not be as enjoyable Is you switch back and forth between in that example could be songs, but will be between different activities uh, with the notion of uh, habit that that's also quite well understood that, oh, if I'm, if my standard of living is spending this much per month, then spending less is going to be like a loss and, and losses count much more than gains. So then you don't want to do that. So then you want to always try to maintain your standard of living or improve it. Uh, but then uh, when you look at the logic of it, you realize that that early improvements are a bad idea because early improvements, then you have to carry them for the rest of your life, unless you want to experience like a setback or a loss. Whereas later improvements might be better. So this is idea of going from less to more, but slowly, at first and then faster later, so to speak. So that's the that that's the, one of the ideas that in the book uh, we insist quite a bit, together with variety and and a spacing, and also we talk about the anticipation and things like that. But um, anyway, it's a, it's called engineering happiness, and it's this idea of quantifying the unquantifiable. So, what's an example you use in the book of going from less to more, but maybe? in a slower uh, kind of way rather than peaking well, early? When a, an example is uh, the, 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 the size of the house that you live in, that will be a, a perfect example. Where mm, going into a big house too soon might not be the best idea because then it's more expensive. Then also, if things don't go well, going back to a smaller house is gonna be uh, painful uh, could you just live a bit longer on this smaller house, then move to a medium one, and then move to a bigger one later? That's just an, an example of... Uh, mm, the other is the quality of the vacations that you take. Like, mm, don't go to really nice resorts too soon, because then, then it's going to be harder to go back. Or if you go to less nicer resorts, you will find them kind of disappointing. Had you not gone to these nice resorts early on, now you will have enjoyed throughout the, the process of going from less to more. Those are just uh, two examples, but there could be uh, that could be many for well, when it comes to, to to your hobbies or what have you. Like always, don't worry if you are missing out. It has also a good aspect of it, which is you can have these increases later on, which is kind of better. And also you can have this spacing, which makes you enjoy more every time. 
it's interesting to hear you say, don't worry about missing out, because I, I think that's one of the things that really people maybe feel challenged by right now with social media and just visibility and all the things happening. Right, uh, right. Well, yeah, pacing yeah. is more challenging. Another big factor is social comparison that affects your reference points. That, that is a very fundamental driver of reference points. And I always tell my students, look, what's going to make you happy is not if you make a big salary or a small salary. Is whether you make more or less or you are recognized or not as would recognize in the company that you work relative to your peers on that company. And they also, uh, some of them come with uh, personal stories uh, agreeing with that viewpoint as well. So it's, it's funny because we always think more is better and but when it comes to psychology, it's, it's higher than your reference point is better, not, more, not necessarily more. So then what is going to be my reference point? Well, it's going to be the, the peers in the company that I work at. And then what's going to make you happy is whether relative to those peers, you're going to be valued, you're going to be paid well, you're going to be uh, recognized. Um, anyway, so those are uh, things that... that come out of that research or logic or, or, or framework. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the PhD program here at the Darden School of Business. Uh, this is a PhD program that is being relaunched. Uh, you are one of the faculty who are involved with that. Um, what's exciting to you uh, about this, uh, the, the relaunching uh, of the PhD program? A very important project. So basically, Two areas in the school, uh, strategy, ethics, and entrepreneurship, together uh, with our area, quantitative analysis, starting next year, we're both offering a PhD program. Um, PhD programs are generally small, so we count on having one, two students per incoming students per year. Uh, the program typically lasts four to five years. And then the goal is to prepare you to do research and then to successfully teach as well in, in, in peer business schools. Um, yes, my thinking is since we have this dedicated department on quantitative analysis, so we're in a nice position to train people on, on, on quantitative methods for business. Um, in the last years, we have hired uh, a very nice group of uh, young researchers in our area. So we are now like well-equipped to, to train PhDs. And I think that for people who are square heads like myself and want to quantify the unquantifiable or, or like to apply uh, quantitative methods to business, uh, getting a PhD in, in business and then becoming a professor at a business school is one of the best professions that, that exist out there. So, so I think we we could contribute to create this training of, of future professors. And then over the years, this has a very important impact on, on our work and how Darden can then not only influence the students directly, but influence these uh, professors who will then teach to other students you know, at, at other schools. Well, I wanted to make sure we got a, a little bit of airtime for that. It's an exciting moment. And we're going to have Andy Wicks on for Office Hours, another faculty member who's involved in this work uh, in July. Uh, just throw it out there for our attendees today. Um, Manel, qu interesting question in the Q&A about the idea of instant gratification uh, versus what you're well, sharing here about pacing. Yes, yes. So usually people uh, look down at instant gratification because they say, oh, that's lack of self-control. But if you look at the model of anticipation, turns out that it's sometimes optimal to have instant gratification moments because you didn't expect them. So you create that kind of surprise for yourself. So it's a, it's a little bit like a counterbalance to the idea that instant gratification is always bad. So then the idea is that no, it may actually be a good idea. Another thing that's linked to instant gratification is uh, surprises, right? Like, how can you uh, surprise yourself? Well, one is to, all on the spot, purchase something that you had not uh, anticipated to purchase, or right? But the other is to have your your spouse uh, make you a surprise gift uh, now and then, right? Like, for instance, uh, with my wife, I 
I'm always in charge of buying stuff. Like I buy the tickets for this, the tickets for that. But then I always, I'm kind of a strategic. I buy the tickets, but I don't tell my wife right away. I Like for instance, I bought now a ticket for a concert. My wife always said, I want to go to Elton John concert, Elton John concert. Okay, so finally I found this Elton John is playing. So I bought the ticket, but I have not told her yet. So I'm thinking, okay, the best moment is going to be a month before the concert because that's when it's going to maximize the the surprise anticipation and so on. So that's the, so it's linked to also instant gratification. I, I don't want to give a bad example saying that you also have to <laughs> fall into that, but I'm just saying that in the context of, of uh, managing anticipation, it might be sometimes a good idea to have a, uh, like a right, an instant purchase. Yes. So what I'm hearing you say, I'm going to try to say this out loud, is that you should manage anticipation, uh, but surprises or instant gratification can also be good. So how do well, you figure out the mix? Is you you get pleasure from anticipation, but that takes off, uh, uh, reduces the pleasure from memory, because the more you anticipate, then the less memorable it is. So sometimes zero anticipation is optimal so that you get most out of the memory. And in some other cases, some anticipation is optimal, but not a lot. So, so that's the idea. That anticipation is either zero or some, but not a lot. So then to have zero anticipation, that's when you have the surprise and the instant gratification. And, and otherwise, some anticipation, but not a lot. Like you want to go and see a movie like like this Top Gun, and now it's out there. Like, oh, between the moment you think that you're going to see the movie and you see the movie, it cannot be too long. Because if it is too long, you will build so much expectation that you will be disappointed. How do companies figure out the right mix here of these things as they understand their customers? So it's linked, right? Like how much time between you announce a product is coming up and the product actually comes up. So if you, some companies nowadays uh, announce, oh, in 2000, whatever, two years from now, we'll launch this and that. I'm questioning whether that's a good idea because you, you create expectations and, and then what if you don't deliver? What if you have to postpone it for one more year? What if it might be a better idea to just have shorter times between you Say you have something ready for delivery and you actually deliver. So it, it could be, uh, there are a lot of elements here, like also the influence on the competitors and, 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 and things of this sort. But one element is, is this buildup of expectations that can lead to disappointment if, if the anticipation times are too long. I appreciate your indulging the, the follow-up questions here, Manel. Another interesting question here in the Q&A is, you've been working uh, your career, research career, uh, in this quantifying the unquantifiable work. Has there been a most surprising finding, something that you just, when you discovered it, you were like, oh my gosh, can this really be? Was there anything like that? Okay, like really surprises. Um, well, there are lots of uh, small things like... Um, like for instance, when it comes to <laughs> to time, like if I say, look, I give you, you will receive whatever, $200 a year from now. Tell me what is the amount of money that I should give you now for which you will exchange the $200? What's the minimum that you will want to receive now instead of $200 a year from now? And then, Let's just make up a number for the sake of the conversation. Let's say that you say one one fifty. Okay, so give me one fifty today, and I'll give up the two hundred a year from now. I'm good. Now the million dollar question is: Imagine I give you hundred fifty now, and now I ask you, tell me how much I have to give you a year from now, so that you give up the one fifty now. what would you expect to hear? Well, in theory, you're supposed to hear oh, 200, right? The same as before. But no, in reality, uh, people will ask you for much more, like 
250 or 300. Why is that? Oh, okay. So the, 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 what we believe is the case, it's because if I give you 150 now for sure, then you, that then uh, becomes your reference point. Oh, I count on that. That's for sure. I have the 150. So then now if I ask you to wait one year, in your head, that has a risk of not happening. And then that means I could lose 150. And that counts double. So then I need much more money to make up for this potential loss in my head. That, uh, whereas if I give you 200 a year from now, that's uncertain anyways. So then the, the sure amount today doesn't have this effect of you counting on it. But you can see that, that this is totally illogical. Like, geez, if 200 a year from now is indifferent 150, then 150 is indifferent to 200, right? But it does not work like that. And then just to, the problem is if you, like, how do you make sense of that? How, I don't know, it's just so, so bizarre, this type of, of, uh, of thing. But, but anyway, it's one of the, one finding that you say, geez, Shall I take this seriously, or do people act on it? Or uh, and I think they do, but it's just one strange finding that uh, something also strange is when it comes to to risk. People, if if you invest in the stock market and you lose, uh, you lose, you feel like leaving it in the stock market, hoping it's going to recover. Uh, the other way around, if you make money, then the temptation is to take it out to secure the gain, right? So I have a friend that set up an investment fund, and then turns out that he did better than other funds, but it was on a bear market. So in other words, he managed to go back to, to no losses sooner than other funds. But then he found that when that happened, people then took away the funds because they say, oh, now I have recovered my loss. I want to get away. Whereas the other funds that they are still in losses, they didn't lose the customers because they still wanted to keep the money there to see whether they recover. So again, it's like the world upside down, like you perform better and then you lose your customers. Well, geez, like how can this be? But that's the psychology of, of, of risk. It's, Anyway, like it's like the wall upside down, basically. And you try to build uh, a model to it, capture this behavior. Predict all these things, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, then they are like uh, models of a wall upside down. So then it's like, uh, well, this, yeah. Well, let's talk about an elective that cuts right to this, uh, behavioral decision-making. I, I can't tell you how many executive MBA students, for our listeners here today, Manel teaches in the full-time MBA program as well as the executive MBA program. I can't tell you how many executive MBA students came up to me and were like, this elective, behavioral decision-making, oh my gosh, one of the best electives I've taken. Yeah, so so, I would teach the core. Uh, that's where we explain more. We try to... In the core, there are certain notions like net present value, expected value, like a risk profile. So we want that to be second nature to students. Like when we say expected value, risk profile, net present value, uh, downstream decision, like all this language, we put it into practice. We embed it in case situations. We want this to be like a second nature to all the students. Uh, that's the core part. And then in the elective, I, I go back to this framework and I revisit like risk preferences from a behavioral viewpoint. I review time discounting, like the present value of future, uh, future cash flows from a, a psychological perceived value. Then we also get into consumers' mental accounting. Like when, when consumers buy stuff, uh, in their heads, they want to make a good use of them. So then, um, and then two things that bother consumers a lot is is when they have to pay a price that's higher than the reference price. So it feels like a ripoff. Uh, but also, they also don't like when at the moment of consumption, 
the enjoyment that they get is smaller than the reference cost in their head for that. It feels that they are throwing money away as well. Um, so that explains what's called the sunk cost effect. That it's, if you bought a ticket for a sports events that's outdoors, well, then no matter if it's raining or snowing or, or hurricane, you'll go to the event to get, try to get your money back, right? <laughs> so that will be the sunk cost effect. But then also another thing that happens is, is that people love to buy subscriptions at pay in advance. Because then uh, if you pay in advance, the, the reference cost of what that costs fades away over time. So it's, it's more enjoyable to do something when you don't have to pay for it. It starts giving the feeling that it's for free, even though in reality you paid for it uh, before. But you don't fully attribute the cost because it happened, you paid uh, some time ago, so then that cost kind of fades away. So we talk about this, such called payment depreciation. Um, so anyway, we revisit all these ideas. Uh, we also, in that course, I also insist on some new frames, rational frames to deal with risk uh, and so on. Then, then, then create a very nice contrast with the intuitive, uh, intuitive rules that people may use. Um, so then I, the objective of the course is really sell them into the rational mindset. But the best way to sell people into the rational mindset is to make them understand their intuition and why is that not always correct. Well, the thing that I really love about what we've talked about here is like people think about numbers and models as very sort of hard, you know, things. And yet there's so much human element in the work that you do, which is, I think sometimes people think that's softer or more qualitative. Right. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the nice part that, and the reality is those frameworks have been developed many, many years ago. But it takes a lot of work to make them more realistic, more credible, and also more applied to business. And that's what a lot of my research has been on, on taking things that have been out there, but maybe not realistic enough, maybe not mature enough to be connected with a business application. Well, let's talk about the cases uh, that you teach uh, in behavioral decision-making. And right. I see a question in the Q&A about, you know, a favorite case or, or, right, or right. two. Case that two uh, there are two cases that, actual, that students actually wrote, and that's the best. Like, they take the course and then all of a sudden say, oh, my God, I could apply this to that situation that I lived. So there's a student that had worked for a company that had a... It was a company that, uh, whose business was to do financing for small businesses. And then they had a call center where, where customers could call and renew their, their credit lines or had questions. So they had to train these uh, people in the call center extensively for three months, uh, hoping that then they will work on the call center for the next three years. Uh, and that was core of the business. And the problem is that this work in a call center is tedious and a lot of people quit before the three years, which then it was very costly because you would not recover your training, which was uh, relatively expensive. So then the idea in the case is, okay, we're going to have a budget of $6,000 to create a retention bonus for uh, these sales representatives working in the call center. And then the case says, well, what shall we do? Shall we give the $6,000 at the very end if you stay and nothing if you don't, and the, if you don't stay until the end? Or we could give $2,000 at the end of every year for three years or $500 every, uh, every quarter. Like, what shall we do? And then that creates already discussion that, well, if you pay everything at the end, that might be too three years down the line, like those are young people, three years is a lot of time, they may be quitting during the first year. Oh, but if you give it the money sooner, the moment you pay $2,000 after the first year, well, those $2,000 are gone. Now there are only 4,000 left. People may quit right away after receiving that first bonus. So what shall we do? So then we have the, 
at that moment, we have introduced the, the perceived value of uh, future cash flow. Like, what is the present value of a future cash flow, not from a financial viewpoint, but from a psychological viewpoint? From a psychological viewpoint, what happens is people discount the near future much more than the distant future. And also larger amounts are discounted less than a smaller amount. So that creates, but we have a formula. So we have a, in the spreadsheet, look, this is a formula. Give me the cash flows. I'll give you the perceived present equivalent of those using the preferences that I elicit from the students. So this is, so these models usually will have like what's called parameters, uh, like the base discount rate, and then a factor for for magnitude and a factor for decreasing impatience. Anyway, like three parameters. So I get those parameters from the students themselves. So I can say, look, this is the best way to predict your present equivalent of a future cash flow. Uh, how much will you make you indifferent receiving now versus getting these cash flows in the future? And then in that case of the retention bonus, what comes out of the discussion with the students is you want to create a flow of payments conditional on you staying in the company that makes you perceive what remains of the life of those cash flows always having the same value so that, so that you are uh, equally likely to quit at any given moment and we make that as high as possible. So you are uh, less likely to quit at any given moment but you always see that the, the value of what remains to be received is the same. And then we put all that in. I like to, if possible, run a, a tool that's called Solver. In, in, it's a, in the spreadsheet is like an optimizer because then it has this, it's like the full circle. Like you, you come with a, a model and then you, you have the application and then you find what's the optimal thing, right? And then you put that in solver and boom, it spits out the, the optimal plan, which is basically pay a lot at the end, maybe $5,000 at the very end. But the other thousand you pay in sooner in an increasing way. Like you, you pay in a small bonus first, then a bit bigger, a bit bigger, a bit bigger, and then the big bonus at the end. And that is what creates the feeling of always you wanting to stay in the company with the same intensity throughout the three years. So that's just an example of a case that students relate a lot with. Um, when a student said, oh, I was working for something like that and I, all we were thinking is when is the right moment to quit? And, <laughs> and so uh, they are always, uh, some of them are, are, have these retention bonuses. So they relate to, to this a lot. Um, so that's just one of the cases that, that it's really nice to teach. Well, Manel, as we wrap up here, we got about five more minutes. I want to thank our attendees for all the great questions. I got two more questions for you. The first one is, um, what are you working on right now that you would want to share with us? Anything, uh, uh, that you're researching at present? Right. So I have a few projects now. One is actually related to this present value. It's about what drives the magnitude effect when you have multiple cash flows is something that's still not resolved. So we run an experiment and we found that that what drives the discounting is the sum of cash flows. Well, that's just one of the projects. Another project with a colleague at Darden is, is an open problem. It's called the search problem. It's when you, like if you, you're looking for a, a hotel or a flight and you go online right and maybe you you can check different you can check hotel.com or booking.com or expedia and then you will see different prices maybe is it worth checking one extra page or just go with one or two searches and take the best of those two or if you are developing a new product how long do i have to keep improving the product as opposed to just say look this is good enough i launch it to the market right this is called the search search problem like you 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 keep sampling things and you can retain the best sample that you got but sampling is costly in terms of time and effort and so on and then one of the open problems is when the distribution of values that you get it's learned through the sample itself like imagine you you're looking for a job and your own value or how good the market is 
you don't know. So you will learn that from your own offers that you get, right? Well, the, when you don't know the distribution, funny things can happen. If you get a really good offer, then actually it may not be a good idea to take it because if you get a really good offer, maybe it's a signal that, that, that there's even better offers out there coming up. So that in other words, the underlying distribution has a lot of variability. Um, that's something that when you incorporate learning can be optimal, whereas if you don't have learning, then no, a very good offer, you have to take it. This is it, there's nothing to learn. It's perfect, take it. But if you're not sure about the possible offers that could be out there, a very good offer might actually be signaled that an even better might be out there. So this is, the, this is a, another research project that I'm working on now. Um, yeah, so. Well, one of the questions we got in the Q&A, and I always think it's interesting to hear from faculty, if students have gotten really interested in the topic here, some of the things that you shared, is there a book or two that you might recommend for folks? I know there's some names that have been mentioned, like Kahneman, Tversky, um, but what would That's you recommend? Good is well michael lewis this writer of business books like the the big short and many other books has written a book called the undoing project about the life of kahneman and tversky that's an interesting book michael lewis the undoing project and there's also richard thaler misbehaving those are two recent books that that uh, relate to, to, to what we have been talking here. And then also there's Kahneman, the thinking fast and slow as well, which we cover in the course as, as well. But yeah, those will be like three, three, three nice books that uh, related to, to this conversation. Tell me about, I've heard about the Michael Lewis book. I, I, I know that the Kahneman book that you just referenced. Tell me about the Richard Thaler book. Yeah, Richard Thaler is, is together with Kahneman and Tversky, one of, let's say, the founders of behavioral economics. He also got the Nobel Prize in economics, I believe, three or four years ago for, for his work. He, he, he has a really good intuition about uh, people's behavior, and he, uh, he's a professor at, at Chicago. He, he's uh, pioneered the notion of uh, mental accounting. He has worked a lot on loss aversion, uh, fairness, reference points, uh, and then has done a lot of work in finance, like showing that markets are not always uh, like rational, so to speak. Um, anyways, and then he has a book called Misbehaving, which is like his life story about his fight against traditional economies that didn't want to admit that that by and large that markets could be rational, so to speak. Well, Manel, I want to thank you so much for your time. I so enjoy hosting these conversations and giving well, our Brett, perspective to students. Yeah. These thoughtful questions and and everybody, thank you for joining today from all, all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. This is such a such a treat. And for our attendees today, a couple things to know. Uh, as always, we share out the recordings of these conversations in two places. Uh, Discover Darden will have both the video and the audio of the conversation. Of course, on our admissions podcast, we will share out the audio content. So stay tuned. Uh, this will be coming to a podcast near you, wherever you look for podcasts. That's where we are. Um, and join us again for our upcoming Office Hours conversations. We'll be back in July with Andy Wicks, a member of the ethics faculty here at the Darden School of Business, and then Manel's colleague, Robert Carraway, who I saw his name was mentioned in the Q&A earlier, a longtime Darden faculty member, also in the quantitative analysis faculty area. He will, uh, he will join us in early August. I'm looking forward to that conversation. So uh, thank you so much, Manel, and, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. And that was my interview with Manel Balsells, a member of the Quantitative Analysis faculty here at the Darden School of Business and the David M. LaCrosse Associate Professor of Business Administration. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.